Hi, guys. Tim and Kev here. Before we get into this week's clash, uh, just wanted to, to say something really. So one of the songs in particular that we go through on, uh, uh, on this album is uh, Cocaine Blues, which uh, contains some fairly strong themes of violence against women. And during the recording, we didn't call it out and we should have done. Uh, it's a song we both spoke quite effusively about and we both like the song, but the themes within it are uh, quite dark and given certainly recent events within the UK, we both done a lot of self-reflection really. And whilst it's not an excuse to say something that's happened recently has made us think about it, um, that's the fact. And we just wanted to say that clearly we can appreciate the song without advocating some of the things within it. And that is very much the case with this song. Yeah. Um, that there, are, there is violence and misogyny against women in, within, within the song. It's, it's clearly there. Yeah. We didn't, we didn't mention it at the time and that's obviously an error on our behalf. And obviously, as Tim said, the recent events in the UK have, force people to to reflect and focus on the ex- lived experience for for women in this country and um, one of the things that that we also wanted to do as well as essentially doing a mere culpa admitting that you know we did we didn't consider that when we did the original record um was also to we don't know who's listening to this that if you are experiencing a uh, domestic violence or domestic abuse there are organizations that you can contact so there is there is a telephone number refuge um who you can contact on in within the uk on 0808 2000 247 um, they also have a website which is www.nationalahelpline.org.uk one of the things on that website is that if you are fearful that someone might see your tracks there's uh, there's a button that flashes up that says quick exit. So it will move you onto a different web page if you are fearful that someone might check your tracks on, on on what you've been looking at. And obviously for anyone who is enduring such terrible abuse or that kind of thing, there are those resources out there and there are people who, who can help and get you to a place of safety. So would urge you if, if you are able to and, uh, and are at that point in your life, then please use those resources and, and do do what you do what you need to do yeah thanks kevin uh absolutely what i'll do is uh in the uh description of this week's episode i'll put the details so uh anyone that needs to access them has got the details there for them we'll generally try and call out shit uh in either in the music we go through or from the individuals involved uh we didn't on this occasion so Sorry about that. So we just felt it was important to say something now. And uh, we'll just uh, at that point say, um, enjoy this week's show. And thanks very much. Welcome to Album the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and put them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. 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 
This is Album Clash. Hello, and this is Album Clash. I am Tim. And I'm Kev. And uh, yeah, welcome to our what is our third Album Clash, and one which is a little bit different to the previous two, but one which I think we're both very excited about. Yeah, there's a couple of cracking albums to to review this time, and I, th- I think we'll, we can really get into the long grass with it, which I'm sure um, people who enjoy a long format um, are, are going to enjoy. And those who like quick, pithy explanations of stuff, maybe not the podcast for you. Brevity is not our forte. <laughs> no. <laughs> right, so before we get into that, though, it's time for the feature, which I believe you dubbed Can't Get You Out of My Head. So, Kev, what can't you get out of your head? I have three. Um, so my first one is the shite one. So recently we bought a new coffee machine and my partner describes herself as a basic white bitch. So has been, <laughs> she has been making uh, iced coffees. Oh dear. With, <laughs> with essentially Starbucks pods. And this has inspired my the song that I've not been able to get out of my head all week because it's a Starbucks Americano, which has unfortunately had Holly Johnson's 1990 hit um, sorry, 1989 hit Americanos uh, stuck in my head. Yes, Americanos, uo, blue jeans and chinos. <laughs> I mean, it's a very long time since I've been reminded of that. So thank you. So in terms of uh, can't get you out of my head, uh, do you have any shite to bring to the table? I do. And it's our fault. Uh, so we record every fortnight. For the last two weeks, I have not been able to stop humming Hearsay's 2001 hit, Pure and Simple. Wow. Hearsay for anyone in the UK that may remember back as far as 2001, or even people that aren't in the UK. Before the days of Simon Cowell and Pop Idol, its precursor was a show called Pop Stars. Hearsay were effectively the band, the group that were the winners of that, and, and their first single was was Pure and Simple. So, so I said that's that's our fault. So Pure and Simple nicks the chord structure from Oasis is all around the world. <laughs> and when I was researching the last show, there was quite a few quotes from Noel Gallagher about why, because he was asked at the time, oh, why didn't you sue him? Because like, it would be a bit rich for me to sue someone else for, for nicking elements of my, of my song, which is fair enough. Well, as we pointed out, you basically stole uh, all young dudes. Exactly. <laughs> so that's been stuck in my head for a fortnight. And then just as I'd, about pretty much got it out of my head, got rid of it. A podcast that I was listening to this morning fucking played a bit from Pure and Simple by Hearsay, <laughs> so it's back in my head again. Uh, so yeah, that, that's that's been really really irritating me. So what about what about new stuff that you've been listening to? So my tip of the hat is two. So I've got one oldie and one one new one. So my oldie, I've already mentioned Holly Johnson, a fellow individual from the city probably a bit better known, uh, Paul McCartney. So I listened to, again, another podcast, um, Adam Buxton's podcast, and he had an interview with Paul McCartney, and they were talking about McCartney 2, which is a really interesting record, and we might cover it at some point. And the song that I've had in my head has been uh, McCartney's Coming Up from the 1980 album, McCartney 2, which is a real funky tune, and like I implore anyone to, to listen to that. There's also a really bizarre tune on it called Temporary Secretary, which is just really odd and interesting, and it's not what you expect from McCartney. The other song I want to tip a hat to is something new, which is um, Olivia Jean and April March's Alonzi which is taken from their upcoming Palladium EP, which is on uh, Jack White's third right, third man record. 
<laughs> that's an unfortunate <laughs> slip of the tongue there, Kevin. <laughs> that's making the um, edit, mate. Sorry, that's staying. Yeah, that's going to have to stay in that. Um, so what it is, it's a really interesting EP. They've done three renditions of the same tune. April March is singing in French and Olivia Jean is uh, singing in English. So the one that's available at the minute is on YouTube, which is Alonze. Um, and the, each song's got a different musical style. Um, so Alonze is April March's lead, and it's just, it's a beautiful bit of dreamy French pop. It's oh, really, nice. it's really nice. Breathy? Um, and I, oh yeah, it's nice. it, it's got a bit of sexiness about it. I really <laughs> like it, and it's fun, it's funky as well. Right, um, so I'll, I'll listen to that. It's a strong tip of the hat for that. So I've got three, not not wanting to outdo you, but I've because I was thinking, <laughs> Christ, I hope Kev doesn't come with only one because I've got I've got three, all relatively new, last year or two certainly. So firstly, uh, I've been listening to quite a lot of uh, Aurora Halal. She is a um, electronic music producer and DJ from Brooklyn. Her stuff is almost sort of in the vein of Daniel Avery, if anyone's into Daniel Avery. Uh, a bit psychedelic. So sort of psychedelic house, really, isn't it? Exactly that. So she uh, released an album back in 2019 called Liquidity. Uh, and I've listened to a lot of her stuff. Really good. I, I like it a lot. The second thing I want to give a uh, shout to, and this is definitely something that you would like, Kevin, is a band called Japanese Television. Aside from having a really cool name, they are sort of retro psychedelic space rock. And a lot of their stuff is quite redolent of 70s B-movie soundtracks. Okay, all the words you've used there are basically uh, ticking boxes for me. So the, the name of the band, the psychedelia going on, um, yeah, that that all sounds good. That sounds right in my wheelhouse. Yeah, re- really good. So they've they've got about they've got well they've got three EPs out because they released an EP in twenty twenty called Three. So uh, well worth a listen. And the final one is uh, some people may be aware that Uncle have got a new single out. Ooh, it is called Do Yourself Some Good, and it is an absolute banger. It's it's really really funky. It's a great tune. I'm a bit, I'm a big fan of James Lavelle's work. It, you know, I've I've liked I've liked Uncle stuff since science fiction. And whilst you may not always enjoy the albums, like there's always something interesting going on there. There's always a, and there's always a tune that's to come out of it. Hundred percent. And uh, so there is a new um, well, he's calling it Ronin One mixtape, which is coming out on the uh, I believe it's the twenty sixth of March. And uh, I am excited to hear that because it is uh, there's a few new tracks on it, but also remixed versions of tracks from his last from Uncle's last two albums, The Road Part One and The Road Part Two. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Grand. So um, that's what we can't get out of our heads. So. Um, check, check them out there's some absolute bangers there and stay away from hearsay and holly johnson <laughs> definitely i mean i gotta say so there are clearly issues with streaming services and the royalties that they pay to artists and again there's a conversation to be had there this isn't the podcast for that i'm sorry what i will say is the beauty of services like spotify apple tunes whatever it might be to the consumer is you've got access to all this stuff on your phone and it's, you know, just pay people what you're supposed to pay them and then we'd all be happy. 
Yeah, because have, having access to all of the all of the music is is an excellent thing. It it just be nice if people could actually earn a living from it because they're the content creators. Exactly, and uh, that ends this week's political soapbox. <laughs> For now, uh, right. So, without further ado, let's get on to this week's clash. Kevin, this was your choice. It was. So the the clash this week is uh, between. At False in Prison by Johnny Cash and Amazing Grace by Aretha Franklin. The reason for the choice was uh, they are two live albums that were recorded in slightly different venues than the normal. So obviously At False in Prison, it's in the title. Amazing Grace is recorded in a church and is, you know, is is essentially a gospel album. And there are there are different different links between the between the both recordings. For example, both artists' dads turn up. <laughs> yes, um, indeed. One one of them one of them has a lovely chat during yeah, it. Does. But and you know, like they they're just two really great and for for both artists, um, massive albums. That I mean, they were both big artists before them. But it's argue it's arguable that it pushed them into the stratosphere. Really, it really exploded their careers and and were were very important for for the genres that they were they were recording recording in as well. So you mentioned recorded in sort of slightly unusual venues. What's the weirdest place you've ever been to a gig? Oh, it's, a, it's an interesting one, Matt. Um, I did go and watch The Kills at a church in Manchester. I think it was a Quaker house or something like that <laughs> because it was a dry gig and The Kills are not, are not a band that you can really watch dry. <laughs> If you ask me to name a less Quakery band than the Kills, I'm not sure I could. I really like the Kills, but yeah, I, that's quite the juxtaposition, let's say. Yeah, given that I'm pretty sure that well, both members of the Kills may have ingested some substances before they went on stage. It seemed seemed quite the dichotomy, <laughs> is how I will put it. Yeah, that's fair. So I've I've also seen a gig in a church. It's one of my mates mates, a guy, a guy called. Jamie McCallum, not Jamie Cullum, Jamie McCallum, sort of jazz, basically. Uh, we went to see them in a in a, in a church uh, near Chilton in uh, in Manchester, and it wasn't a, it was in a church, but it wasn't a dry gig because uh, they had a little bar set up in the like village hall next door. <laughs> but it was a really good gig. Um, the weirdest place I've played a gig is in a in a town square outside a spa. And like this isn't like busking. It wasn't like yeah, I was I was busking. No, no, no. This was like a proper gig. There was so it was me and my, me. I was again. I was about to sixteen. Me and my band, drums, guitarists, everything, PA system. It was in Much Wenlock Town Square, as I say, outside the spa shop, next to the video store. And I, I, for the life of me, I have no idea what the occasion was. Like we can't just have rocked up on a Saturday morning and started playing a gig, but. We were there. Like, there's literally people walking into the video store to rent something to watch on Saturday night. Whilst I'm blurting out common people on the town square, so um, yeah, a bit of a surreal experience to be honest with you. I mean, like before you explained, I was going to check whether it was like outside a, a spa, like a, you know, like a some no, kind of retreat place, a, a convenience but, but no, store, like literally the spa. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. so, people nip, nipping in to get a bottle of white lightning. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> whilst whilst exactly. you're um, bellowing outside, 
was mad. And I say, I've got no idea why, but it definitely happened. Well, it either definitely happened or it was a really vivid fever dream that I've never forgotten. <laughs> Uh, okay so just before we get into the albums i think when we've generally been reviewing each album we've talked about uh the artwork uh the the songs its legacy i think because we're doing live albums i think the important thing with a live album is whether it brings you into the experience of the actual event so sometimes and this is this is certainly not to criticize the band because i'm a big fan of them Public Service Broadcasting have a live album live at Brixton, and it's really good. Like they perform it really well, but I don't feel like I'm in the Brixton Academy. It's a perfectly good performance of all their songs, but I don't feel like I'm at the front in the dark listening to them. What I want us to consider, and when we're talking about this, is how redolent it is of being in that venue at that time yeah that's a really good point uh, and we will talk about that because i think both of these albums do that well as you said they put you in the front row in, in the venue um, fortunately we're both able to leave Folsom prison at the end <laughs> so as we always do we'll go through these albums chronologically so at Folsom prison was released in 1968 Amazing Grace in 1970. So we'll do At Folsom Prison first, and I will take us through that one. So At Folsom Prison by legendary blues, folk, country music, whatever you want to call him, star, the man in black, Johnny Cash. It was released in May of 1968. Uh, it was recorded on January the 13th of 68 at Folsom State Prison in California. So anyone who's a, who's a fan of Cash and things we'll, we'll go on to talk about in a minute may realize that Johnny Cash recorded the famous song Folsom Prison Blues back in 1953. He'd actually first become interested in Folsom Prison after watching the film Inside the Walls of Folsom Prison, which is a 1951 film noir. Uh, so that inspired him to write Folsom Prison Blues and, and, and keep that connection, if you like, to the prison. So the album wasn't his first concert inside a prison. So in 1957, he'd performed a concert in Huntsville State Prison in Texas. In 1958, on New Year's Day, he played in San Quentin uh, near San Francisco, a concert which was actually witnessed by uh, country music legend Merle Haggard, uh, who actually said that he was inspired to become a musician himself by seeing Cash in, in that concert. And he played another concert at Folsom itself in 1966. I mean, can we just talk about the sheer? I'm I'm never quite sure how to how to use this word. The chutzpah, chutzpah of asking to record an album in a prison and do and not only in a prison, but do it as a live album. I yeah. mean, could could you see? I mean, you could definitely couldn't see it happening now. But like even then, like nobody, nobody was doing live albums in prisons. <laughs> I mean, it's it's no. absolutely wild as a concept. It is, and he did he did three. So there was after this one, he did a, a, a very famous show at San Quentin again in 1969, which was released as an album. He played at uh, and I don't know how to pronounce this Österreicher in Sweden in 1972, which was released as an album. So there was a trilogy of, of live albums there. So yeah. I don't know of any other artists that have ever done anything like that, to be honest with you. And uh, as you said, to do it three times and release it as a, release them as live albums is that's got a man with some balls. Yeah, it takes it takes a hell it takes a hell of a lot and a hell of a 
just to just to have the have the concept and then execute it as well it's and sorry execute is probably not the best word <laughs> in, in this context one of the reasons that he played a lot of concerts in prisons is anyone that's that's familiar with cash may well know that a lot of his records basically talk about either being in prison or people have committed crimes people on death row etc and inevitably that gained him quite a lot of popularity with prison inmates who wrote him a lot of fan mail, asking him to form at their prisons. As we'll get into when we start going through the songs, he's got the crowd eating out of the palm of his hand throughout this concert. Oh, Christ. Um, yeah, and I, I suppose once we get into the first song, we'll understand why, because it's it's a hell of an intro. Uh, exactly. So just a little bit as to as to how, how he got here, at the time leading up to recording at Folsom Prison, he was he was heavily addicted to amphetamines. That had led to the breakdown of his first marriage to Vivian Liberto. In 1967, Cash had been arrested in Walker County, Georgia, uh, after a car accident in which police found a bag of prescription pills about his person. Having unsuccessfully attempted to bribe the local deputy, he spent the night in jail in Lafayette, Georgia, and he was released the following day after the sheriff had basically warned him about the danger of wasting his potential, given obviously he's a very high profile man by that time. Uh, and Cash had later basically claimed that that was instrumental in helping him get clean. There's a apocryphal tale that around this time he actually attempted suicide in Nickajack Cave, which is a partly flooded underground cave in Tennessee. So... As it's been told, Johnny Cash said, whilst heavily under the influence of drugs, he crawled into the cave trying to lose himself and, as he said, just die. But he passed out on the floor uh, and awoke. And as he claimed, he felt God's presence in his heart, crawled to safety following a faint light and a breeze. He claimed that it represented his rebirth. However, that probably never happened. <laughs> so... Um, in a, it's a nice story. It's a very nice story. Um, so Robert Hilburn is a, is a cash biographer. It, it, he, in an interview with CNN.com in 2013, he basically said that he found out that Nickajack Cave was completely underwater in the autumn of 1967 when it's supposed to have happened. So he couldn't have crawled into it or he'd have just drowned. So... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a nice story. Uh, and the other thing is, it's it's been widely established that Johnny Cash was, although his drug intake had severely declined, he was still taking amphetamines up till 1970 and was on them at the time of this gig. So, yeah, it's a nice story, but it's, it's bollocks. So anyone who's seen the 2005 biopic Walk the Line, you may know that this gig features quite heavily in that film. And it's depicted again with you know with some truth as being the thing which revives Johnny Cash's career. In terms of the gig itself, rehearsals took place over two days immediately prior to the gig on the 11th and 12th of January at the wonderfully named El Rancho Motel in Sacramento, California. I mean, that sounds like a classy place to go to. <laughs> I'm I'm th- I'm thinking of. Um... In the, in the Simpsons with the vibrating beds and all, all, all that kind of thing. Yeah. With the coin-operated Bible. So, yeah. Although, apparently, during their rehearsals, they were visited by then-governor of California, Ronald Reagan, who was giving an after-dinner speech 
at the hotel to offer his encouragement for the gig. So, I mean, it's got to have had some prestige if Reagan's turning up there because he was a movie star before. Obviously, oh, Quimby. <laughs> Uh, and so, yeah, just lastly, Cash actually played two shows on the day, one at 9.40 a.m. I mean, that's an early that's an early time for a gig to start. You can understand why, but Christ alive. I mean, and um, uh, sorry to steal thunder, the majority of the songs on the album, uh, well, the original 68 recording, they are from the early morning show. Yep. So, and as we will talk about the sheer energy and excitement that's that's in all those songs it's at half nine in the morning like fair play to him exactly and as kev said all but two of the of the tracks on the on the original 68 release were recorded on that on that first show because the band were knackered they just couldn't keep up those energy levels for for two performances so close together how how gutted would you be would you be if you went to the later one where they could barely sing or play Like, I've got nothing else to look forward to for the rest of the fucking year. I'm being put to death tomorrow morning. And I've got the shite Johnny Cash performance. Great. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Um, before we start going through the tracks, there's been numerous releases of this album. So the f- original release in 68 had 16 tracks on it. There was then a re-release in 99, I think, which had another three tracks on it. And then back in, I think it was 2008, forgive me if I'm wrong, uh, they released effectively a deluxe version, which had the full recording of both shows on. We're going to go through the original 1968 release with 16 tracks on because that's the classic album and 16 tracks is enough for us to talk about, quite frankly. As as you, anyone who's listened to our previous podcast, we don't need particularly long albums to pontificate and talk shite about for a long time. So 16 tracks is more than enough, really. Uh, we'll say a little bit about the artwork, as we usually do. Now, there's not a great deal to say about the artwork for that Folsom Prison. It's a picture of Johnny Cash on stage, dressed in his classic, Black suit with white coll- white shirt collar, and there's a bead of sweat trickling down the side of his face. It, it's not the the most exciting designed album cover, but you know it's you know it's a Johnny Cash album. There's a nice font, <laughs> like, although, and I'm sorry to give things away. It it clearly is second best in the font stakes on these two album covers. Oh yeah, when when we get into our big fun chat um, on Amazing Grace, then we can we can have a lovely chat about typefaces. <laughs> so as we usually do, just before I start going through each track, we we talk about how we each got introduced to the album. So uh, so yeah, Kev, how did how did you discover that Folsom Prison? So in the early two thousands, after the the release, particularly of the fourth American recording, for, third and fourth American recording. Cash had a renaissance and became much more sort of spoken about. He'd he'd fallen into, not disrepute, but basically his 80s output was much more sort of religiously focused and he'd very much become a a country staple. He wasn't really spoken about in the mainstream. He started doing the recordings with Rick Rubin, the American recordings, which started rehabilitating his, his musical legacy and, by the early 2000s, he became, he'd become massive. And I suppose it was that point 
uh, particularly around the release of Hurt and the cover of Personal Jesus, that I certainly became much more aware of his legacy. And as soon as as soon as I'd heard, I heard a just one song off this album. It's like I, I need to hear more. It, it pulls you in straight away. So it's slightly later for me, and a bit shit house. Not not quite as shit house as uh, I watched Walk the Line and thought I should listen to some Johnny Cash tunes, but nearly as shit house as that. It was basically it was his death. Uh, that made me think, and obviously around the time of his death, a lot of his tr- tunes were being played on the radio. It just made me think, wh- why haven't I listened to Johnny Cash before? And so, yeah, I'd started listening to Johnny Cash at that point. And similar to you, I, I listened to At Folsom Prison, and it didn't take me long listening to that album before I thought, fucking hell, this is brilliant. And again, sorry, we're, we're sort of giving the game away a little bit as to our feelings of this album, but yeah, that's that's it. That was this is one of the first Johnny Cash albums I heard. All right. So um without further ado, I will start taking us track by track through the album. So the first track, which is introduced by a just phenomenally understated hello, I'm Johnny Cash. I mean, what an introduction to, <laughs> to an album. And I'm led to believe so um the introduction was the MC's idea. Uh, So the MC is a local Californian DJ, um, Hugh Cherry, and he told the prisoners not to clap or do any or make any noise. But when Johnny introduced himself to blow the roof off and my God, my God, they do that. And it absolutely puts you as though you're in the prison with them at that time. I mean, essentially... I feel like I need to prep me shiv for uh, dealing with someone in the yard later, um, because <laughs> because I feel like I'm I'm part of the Folsom Prison straight away as soon as that's said. Uh, and they they bang straight into Folsom Prison blues, which I mentioned earlier is um, it was from his first album. Uh, so he wrote it in 1953, recorded it in 1955, and it appeared on his debut album. Johnny Cash and his hot and blue guitar. Now, clearly uh, the phrase hot and blue carried quite a different meaning in 1957 than it does nowadays. It's lucky that you don't have to Google that. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Now, the song itself borrows, and I'm saying borrows with inverted commas, heavily from a song called Crescent City Blues by Gordon Jenkins. The structure is similar, the melody is similar, and it's got it basically takes loads of the of the same lyrics. And Johnny Cash himself admitted as much. So uh, his bassist Marshall Grant was quoted as saying, "He'll tell you in a minute that he stole the song, but he made it a more interesting song." Okay, there's something to talk about there. Uh, Found actually- it or made it better. <laughs> well, so. A lot of the edgier lyrics, I, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. That's a Johnny Cash lyric. That isn't in Crescent City Blues. Johnny Cash actually eventually did pay Jenkins $75,000, which just shows how much um, plagiarism suits have escalated with inflation over the years. So, yeah, he never denied Nick in it, but it, if you listen to Crescent City Blues, it's a, lot of, it's a far slower track, but it, as I said borrows very heavily from it. I mean and and as a as an opener for a for any live gig let alone one in the prison I mean it's really up tempo it's a great song and it's so well performed I mean it absolutely bangs straight away and you are there it's so good. Yeah. What 
what an opening, as you say. And the thing that struck me is fucking hell, he was a good singer, wasn't he? The range he's got from the, the higher notes right down to the bassy notes, which I can't reach. The band as well. And we'll, I'm going to say this a load as we go through this album. Like the band sounds so tight. The, the rhythm section just plodding along oh, like God. a train rolling down the tracks. Phenomenal. Obviously, that I mean, it's referenced in um, Walk the Line as well, is that that was Cash's kind of signature sound, was that sort of rolling train, that kind of... That, and obviously the, the the band, you know, absolutely are, are vital to that. And they are they are fantastic throughout this, as all the members who perform here are are absolutely brilliant. Agreed. So this version was itself released as a single um to accompany and promote the album in May of 68. Uh, and it was it was gaining popularity, but the assassination of Senator Bobby Kennedy in June of 68 basically stopped it in its tracks because of that lyric I mentioned earlier. I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. Radio station said, we can't play that. So uh, Columbia Records pulled the single and re-released it with that line edited out, despite a lot of protestation from Johnny Cash. However, it reached number one in the US country chart and it made the top 40 in the main billboard chart. So it was a huge success and really start, you know, drove the success of the album. All right. So we'll go on to the second track, Dark as the Dungeon. Uh, it's a cover uh, written and released by Merle Travis in 1946. And it, it's a lament about working in a coal mine. I mean, what you can, what you can certainly say, uh, Cash again sounds great on it. There's lovely bits of interaction with the crowd throughout this song. Musically, it's not a particularly complicated song, but it's so well done. It's just, it's just really lovely. Um, and, and what I what I really what I want to talk about as well is that again, considering where we're, where this is being recorded and what what era as well that this is being recorded, like the. The sound is so crisp. It's 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 lo- like it's it's a lovely it's a lovely recording. Like well well done to the engineers. So you mentioned the interaction with the crowd and the you know when he picks up on s- someone laughing during the lyrics and it's really nice. And that's why I said he, he's got the crowd wrapped around his finger. Two songs in, two songs yeah. in, yeah. and the crowd is eating out of his hand. Absolutely, and I love that the line at the end. I just wanted to tell you that this show has been recorded for an album released on Columbia Records. So you can't say hell or shit or anything like that. That's just, that's, that's brilliant. Uh, so they use that line in walk the line. That was, that was sort of somewhat out of context because they didn't have the, the interaction in the song before, but, but I used that in, in walk the line. It's, I like the fact that it's played like a waltz in three, four time. As you said, it's quite simple musically. What I'm going to say after our first two clashes where we'd commented on the number of long songs. It's really nice to have put on an album and had the first two songs come in both at under three minutes. It's really nice. Take note, uh, Noel Gallagher and Eric Clapton. You can get you can get the crowds eating out your hands by not by not having twenty guitar tracks yep. and it just being really simple. Precisely. Um, yeah, I, I, I haven't got anything else to say. I really, really like uh, Darks and Dungeon. It's as you said, simple but nice. Yeah, I've, I've nothing more to add there. It's it's just it's all really well done. Okay, and so we're on to the third track uh, called "I Still Miss Someone." 
This was uh, co-written by Johnny Cash and his nephew Roy Cash Jr. was originally uh, released as the B-side to the 1958 single Don't Take Your Guns to Town. So um, I have to say it's not my favourite song on the album. It's a bit... It's a bit too country for me. It's it's very twee. I don't dislike it, but I could do without it. I mean, I I, I think it's really well performed. I, I don't dislike it. What what I will say is, given the subject's matter and the sentiment in the song, it's a bold choice for what for the third for not only singing it at the prison where people are probably missing someone. Yes. <laughs> It's it's also a bold choice in the in the in the gig, really. The three songs in, you've you've got you've got people quite high from your intro, and then you brought you kind of brought brought them back down a bit. So it's it's a bold choice. I like it, and I think I think it's really well performed. I understand what you what you're saying about the the tweeness to it. I think if um, if it had a slide on it, then I might. I, I might be having trouble with it. Do you know what? I nearly, I nearly wrote, "Oh, this is lacking as a pedal steel guitar." <laughs> <laughs> and, and you're right. So I just want to come back to what you were saying there about not sugarcoating things for the crowd. And you can hear that throughout this album. The songs are very deliberately chosen to be the sorts of songs that he knows that audience have connected with. So there's a, there's a quote from his son by June Carter. John Carter Cash. He knew he was singing for murderous rapists and killers, but he also knew that he was singing for people that were suffering greater hardships than they were due. And as I said, for me, you can tell from the choice of songs throughout this album that he's like, no, this is what these people want to hear because this is the life they're living. And as, as much as I've just said that I'm, I'm not particularly a fan of this song, you've you got to give him every credit for the choice of tracks that he plays throughout this gig. Yeah, he he doesn't he doesn't just go for the e- the easy choice the the, the ones that are just going to get the crowd going. He he goes for he goes for ballads, he goes for for ones that are going to make prisoners lament for what they've lost and in terms of a set list it's a really well well put together and interesting collection of songs that have really he's he's put a lot of thought into what the audience wants and needs really so they need they need things that are going to pick them up but they also need things to allow them to think about what it is that they're that they're missing by being in prison that's a that's a really good way of putting it and so we move on to track number four cocaine blues banger now you're talking wow yeah if you want to pick if you want to pick everyone up after i still miss someone you you've chosen correctly oh yeah uh, so it's a, it's another cover written by TJ Red Arnold. In itself, it, it's a reworking of a track song called Little Sadie or Penitentiary Blues, uh, which was recorded in 1944. The, the crowd is absolutely going off throughout this song. Yeah, they they absolutely buzz buzz off this. Um, and what what you can also what you can also hear from it, like so I'd. I know later on in the gig he referenced it that basically singing this song knackers his voice for yep. the rest of the gig, and you can hear him coughing periodically. Yeah, yeah, it it absolutely does him in. It's so well done. It's so well done. And it, again, it's they just bang straight into it. It just you know, there's no no drawn out intros. Just like 
come on, in we're, we're in. Uh, oh, just wow! It, this is a this is a great murder ballad. Yeah, it's it's abs- it's absolutely brilliant. Um, and again, at the at the end of the song, the announcements that they've included in the recording again makes you feel like you're there, that yep. you're in the Folsom crowd, and you you are you are surrounded by these murderers and rapists because you're hearing the announcements of people having to go to reception and stuff like that. So this Johnny Cash had originally recorded this on his uh, 1960 album. Now there's a song under the name Transfusion Blues. Uh, I, I don't know what what persuaded him to to change the name for this album, but this is the version I'm f- familiar with. Uh, I mean, I don't know whether um, they're going to persuade Lance Armstrong to do a version of Transfusion Blues, one for the cycle fans there. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I've got nothing for that. That's really good. <laughs> um, just the last thing I say about this this before we move on is there's there's a nice cheap pop reference to to the uh, to the place that he's playing when he says 99 years in the Folsom pen and it gets a cheer from the crowd. Yeah, I mean, like he he could he could go cheap and and say like, well, this is it's a much better crowd here in um, Folsom than it is in San Quentin, but he he doesn't go that. He just he just puts the little the little reference in there, sends sends, sends the crowd off. I mean, he, he might as well just say, "Finally, the Rock has come back to, to Folsom." Folsom. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, yes, I like wrestling. Uh, right on to. 25 minutes to go. Uh, another cover written and recorded by Shel Silverstein from his 1962 album, Inside Folk Songs. Uh, originally recorded by Johnny Cash in 1965 for the album, Johnny Cash Sings the Ballads of the True West. I've written here, this is a really good sequel to Cocaine Blues. This it, is great gallows humour. I adore this song. I absolutely adore it. The performance is is brilliant. He just feeds off the crowd's reaction to it, um, and it's the it's the sheer theatricality, the performance that he puts in. The you know, a spin his eye and all all that kind of thing. He's playing up to the crowd, but it just works so well. And it, I adore this song. It is so good. There is a mistake in it, though. Yeah, I, which I which I noted the first time I heard it. He does he does lose count briefly. He does lose count briefly. He goes. What is it? He goes from. He goes from. Uh, I think it's fifteen to ten. No, no. There's one. There's one where he goes back up as well. He goes. I think he's, he he goes from five up to seven, then down to four. Hang on. What's gone on there? There's def- There is. There's an issue. Maybe there was a last minute Supreme Court appeal, so it it, it bumped the time back up. But no, because uh, because the governor's out to lunch. It literally says that in the song. <laughs> They've gone past the governor. They've gone to the Supreme Court. Like, yeah, oh, sorry. No, you're right. My apologies. Um, I I like I like 25 minutes to go. It's great. It's as you say. It's pure gallows humor. And obviously, uh, one of the funny things. Well, not necessarily funny, but particularly singing this song. The the performance happened, I believe, in the cafeteria at Folsom, uh, which literally behind it is death row. <laughs> know that that's brilliant so so singing it to people who are like well a couple of hours johnny but yeah basically <laughs> i better get better than beans for my last meal <laughs> pork and beef 
Uh, Again, another one, another one for the wrestling. Party. This this podcast is brought to you by Vince McMahon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's uh, let's move on. Orange Blossom Special. So uh, originally a bluegrass tune written by Irwin T. Rouse about a luxury passenger train uh, from New York to Miami. Apparently, it's become a benchmark for fiddlers to display their virtuosity. For the recording here, the fiddle parts were replaced by, well, as Johnny Cash himself talks about in the album. The harmonicae. Harmonicae. Two separate harmonica parts, both played by Johnny Cash. And his his own special arrangement that he did he did for it. And fucking hell. I mean, like the harmonica sounds so red, so like a train like unbelievable, unbelievable performance. And like Within this song as well, like the particularly the last three songs as well, the energy in them the, from from the band, from the audience. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I, I mean, like I think particularly in Orange Blossom Special. I mean, in all in in all the songs, but particularly, I think I've personally feel in this song, the band comes across as so good, so great, and so tight. Uh, yeah, I, I, and I, as I said earlier, so tight. So, so, and, and this one more than any other track. So, W.S. Holland, the drummer, the way, the way he's got the little break beats in there, and the way again, it, as you said, it, it it makes it sound like a train rolling along. It's absolutely phenomenal. The pace at which they play this track, but the way they stick together so tightly, it's. Uh, it's awesome in in the truest sense of the word. Um, I mean, I know he'd given up the amphetamines by this point, but it really does sound like he's playing like the band is playing on speed. He had not given up the amphetamines by this point. He ah, was right, still, okay. He was still on them at the time of this gig. His his intake had so if you watch Walk the Line, that is the uh, narrative of the film that he's given up the amphetamines by this point, and his intake certainly had. Uh, reduced drastically because because June Carter and her family had stayed with him for a period to to try and wean him off, but he was not altogether clean by this point. He was not altogether clean until 1970, so he was still on them at this point, and so that's perhaps a reason for the energy levels. I don't know. I don't know whether he'd he'd taken that particular day. I'm speculating. Well, they play fucking fast anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they do, and it sounds really really good. Okay, we are racing through here. So we move on again. Next track, The Long Black Veil, is another cover. It's written by Danny Dill and Mary John Wilkin. Uh, it was originally recorded in 1959 by the fantastically named Lefty Frizzle. What's her name and half. It's great. Um, it's a first-person song. It's sung, it's sung in the first person about a man who's been falsely accused of murder and then uh, found guilty and executed. The guy has an alibi, uh, the alibi being that he was in the arms, as it says in the lyrics, in the arms of my best friend's wife at the time of the murder. But he does not admit to that. He stays silent in the courtroom, is sentenced to death, and is executed. And so his best friend's wife is the woman in the long black veil who visits his graveside. It's so, again, like... After playing essentially three bangers, the tonal shift here is immense. But again, like given given the crowd that he that he's got, the way like it just 
instantly brings brings it down and like everyone feels like just the the depth of emotion in this in this song it's and it's so it's so well performed i mean that in terms of albums what a what a first half of an album yeah like absolutely yeah even even if you and i know you're you're not massively keen on i still miss someone like it's it's not like it's shite like no. there's there's very like there's very few missed beats there. It's an unbelievable half of an album, and to finish it on that that the first half, staggering, just a staggering piece of work. I think this song is absolutely beautiful. Yeah, as as you said, after after three high octane tracks, to bring it right down, just Johnny Cash and his guitar singing this haunting lament. It's absolutely beautiful, as I say. I have one criticism, and a criticism which is going to annoy me for the next three or four tracks is that Johnny's guitar is out of tune. <laughs> In particular, the bottom E string is flat on this track, and you can hear it right at the start before he starts playing the song, and it's there all the way through, and I'm thinking, Johnny, your guitar's out of tune. I'll just come on. That is me. This is my um, pedantry, if you like. I, but it, yeah, it's there, and I can't not hear it. Fortunately, I'm deaf to it, so <laughs> it doesn't bother me. This is a song which has been covered by approximately everyone. <laughs> so covers include versions by the band Bruce Springsteen, Marianne Faithful, Mick Jagger, and the Chieftains. That's one cover version, not two. Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. I mean, yeah, of course. Of course. Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, the Black Crows, and Richard Hawley. And I've, I've not heard Richard Hawley's version, but I want to. Hmm, that, that, that would intrigue me. I mean, I would definitely be, as you know, all over the... Um, and I have heard the, um, Nick the Nick Cave and Bad Seeds version. It's... It, well, the, there are strong links between Cash and uh, Cash and Cave. He's covered a number of, of Johnny Cash's song, and Johnny Cash has uh, covered uh, the Mercy Seat, for example, as well. Also, a great song. Indeed, indeed. Uh, so, listen, we're going to do Nick Cave on this show at some oh, point. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> so there you go. So uh, yeah, that's pretty much all I've got to say about the Long Black Veil. I really really like it yeah it's 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 beautiful i mean one one thing that i i would like to point in your direction particularly related to to the guitar so drummer uh flake holland who was interviewed in rolling stone in 2018 for a anniversary of the of the record so he said that was the days uh when we didn't have monitors on stage and we couldn't hear what was going on all they had was this house system. And when we got through to the next song that John would start to do, and we'd have no idea what it was going to be. So he'd start singing the song and we couldn't hear it. We'd just start playing something. So if we just unpack that quote, they couldn't they couldn't hear each other. Yeah. And so they just they just played. And for the songs to be this good, to be this tight and this well performed yeah. without without being able to hear each other. I mean, it's the musicianship of that. Unbelievable. I agree. To be fair, I agree. 
I think that is extremely impressive. It, it's it's redolent of if you've ever heard. So if you've seen the Beatles documentary that Ron Howard did a couple of years ago, uh, whose name briefly escapes me, he stripped back the screaming to hear what what the Beatles were actually playing, and they were so tight. They were they were really good, even though they couldn't hear each other over the din of the screams and everything. And this is the, this is the same thing. It shows you. Just the these touring bands who'd played so much and just knew each other's beats without even being able, being able to hear each other. It's it, it's amazing. It's an amazing ability. It is. There's no way I could play a gig without monitors. What I would say is, Johnny, you're playing an acoustic guitar. You're literally <laughs> you're not, you're holding it. Go, are you? If you can't hear that that E string is flat, then come on, fella. Time to put the drugs down because I'm not letting it go, no. <laughs> okay, send a picture of Mother. So, well, before we go to send a picture of Mother, there's another bit of great interaction uh, with the audience. It's when Johnny, because oh, he talked about coffee, and he asks for a drink of water, and he talks about, you know, is this, you drink this? Is this, is this really water? water? <laughs> and he pretends to sort of gag on it, and it's it's great. So yeah, but just just before the start, I send a picture of mother. That's a really nice bit of interaction that just shows this rapport with the crowd. Yeah, very much so. Uh, send a picture of mother, first recorded by Johnny Cash and the Carter family in 1962. It tells the story of of a jailed man talking to his cellmate who has been released. The protagonist, you might say, knows he's never going to be released. He's never going to be free, and he wants his friend to check in on his family. So something like. I've always thought since I started listening to Johnny Cash, he, he, he's a fantastic storyteller in his songs. Oh God. Yeah. And this is one where the story is so poignant. And again, singing to the audience, singing in a way that is respectful of what he knows they are feeling. Yeah. I mean, the, this, this album works in sort of three song sections we, you, you've got you've got the opener, which has got everyone up, and then he sort of brings everyone, calms everyone down after after coming on stage and everything. Then he brings them back up with the Cocaine Blues, twenty five minutes ago, Orange Blossom special, and them is getting everyone up, banging, jumping, and then then there's like a triumvirate of three songs to make it make the audience, you know, talk to talk to the things that they're struggling with. So obviously we talked about the, the the long black veil. Send a picture of mother is is again as part of this suite, and then the then the next song which we'll we'll go on to talk about the wall. So these are these are a collection of three songs which again uh, speaking to the to the difficulties and the emotions that all these prisoners must be feeling being away from everyone. So and send a picture to picture of mother is it, there's a beautiful simplicity to it and it's it's really well done as you say it's it is is cash it is storytelling best really um, you've put it perfectly i can't say anything else than that so i won't try to i'll move on to <laughs> the wall uh, so this is another one that is from orange blossom special and it's sung from the point of view of a man in prison singing about his cellmate a cellmate who commits suicide because he knows he'll never be able to to escape or never be able to climb the wall. As I've written here, exactly as you just said, this rounds off a trilogy of jail songs, singing to his audience. They are responding to him. At this point, I reached peak annoyance. Johnny, tune your fucking guitar. It's all (laughs) over the show because now the A is also flat as fuck. And I'm sorry, but it's really driving me to distraction. (laughs) 
again with my uh, slightly slightly deaf ear, it did not bother me at all. The, again, this song is such a good choice for the album yeah, and that that run of, run of songs. The interaction with the crowd is is fantastic, and they like just the you can you can hear a pin drop yeah. whilst he's sing, singing this song. Yeah. Again, talk, like as as we've talked about throughout, the given who's in that crowd, that they are just they are just there and they are with with that song, and it, there's no one there's no one pissing about or anything. They are feeling every sort of emotion within that song. Yeah, they are. To go back to what you said as we started talking about the album, as are we. We are there with them. We are imagining what it must be like to in the previous song have a cellmate who is being released and to know you're never going to experience that. And in this song to have a cellmate who's driven to the point where he can't go on anymore because he knows he's never going to get freedom. And that speaks to the power of these songs and the way they're performed, that it, it puts us in that, in that picture. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's nothing really more, more you can say about it. It, it, You can see how, uh, how Johnny Cash became an advocate for prison reform by the, the the tone the tonal nature of these songs yeah. he he un, whilst there was always a confusion whether he he had actually gone to prison or not that he did he did play on a little bit as the outlaw and that kind of thing you can you can see that he understood he had an empathy for for the prisoners for the down and outs who who had found themselves in in Folsom uh, and then we move on to an odd couple of songs. Uh, <laughs> I, I I think I think that these are important as sort of we talked about palate cleansers before, and I think given that he you know he's he's made the prisoners sort of confront their own reality, confront their potential mortality in prison. That give him a bit of fun, give him a, a bit of something that that's a bit light, that's a a bit fun, a bit silly, and. The, these two songs are are a, are a collection, really. So this the first one, uh, which is "Dirty Old Egg Sucking Dog," it's a bit it's a bit good bit of light relief following the last few songs, um, and it gets such a great reaction from the crowd. It it does. So "Dirty Old Egg, egg Sucking Dog," written by the uh, renowned producer Cowboy Jack Clement, was released on Cash's 1966 album "Everybody Loves a Nut," which was. Uh, in itself, a bit of a comedy album, you might say. You know, a light-hearted album. I, it, I, I'm not sure it's as funny as Johnny thinks it is. That's all I'm going to say. I, I, I know, I know what you what you're saying. It's it's not it's not the most hilarious hilarious of, of songs. I, I think I think they work tonally well just to bring everyone bring everyone back up after particularly after the wall and the, the way that song ends yeah yeah okay okay I, I see your point i see your point there it uh, i don't dislike it i i just it's a bit daft fair, fair, fair enough as is so then we move on to flush through in the bathroom of your heart and this is definitely not as funny as johnny and cowboy jack who wrote it think it is i mean the, there are some cracking lines in it so <laughs> the the line that uh, around uh, the elevator, elevator of your heart. I've been shafted. I've been shafted. That gets a brilliant reaction from from the crowd, and it, it is it is a funny line. Yeah, but that, you know things like I was I was ground up in the garbage disposal. I got I, it goes on too long. There's too 
all right, we get it. That's a that's a fair that's a fair point. That it it doesn't necessarily need to be as long as it is for a for as lightweight as it is. I, I will I will grant you that. So uh, yeah, I, I I get your point. These two these two are to to lift the spirits of the crowd. Fair enough. Uh, but as we'll go on to your, your job usually is to leave the crowd on a high and not so much with this album, (laughs) Uh, but yeah, it's filler for me and I could just as easily do without these two. Fair enough. Uh, so then the band comes back on and we've got Jackson with June Carter. So this rendition was performed not long before the two were married, actually in February of 68, uh, as depicted in Walk the Line, and this did happen, Johnny Cash proposed to June Carter on stage during this song. Uh, and obviously she accepted and, and, and they got married. I love this song. I think it's really good. It's it's a brilliantly done song. And they, they, the tempo, it's, it's brought brought everything back. The performance is really good. June, June and Johnny's voice are fantastic together. The band are absolutely cracking away. It, it's there's nothing more you can say apart from it. It's a tour de force. Yeah, tour de force is a, a, exactly. So um, it was it was written uh, and originally recorded by Billy Wheeler and, and Jerry Lieber in 1963. It was made famous by this version and another version. In, uh, in so both recorded and released in 1967. The the Cash and Carter version released in 67 really reached number two on the Billboard Country Music Chart. There was also a version recorded in the same year by Nancy Sinatra and Lee Hazelwood. Ooh, I'm intrigued by that. Exactly, yeah. That's why I wanted to read it. It's like, I, I cannot imagine what that would sound like, but I'm going to go and find Sultry. out. Sultry. Yeah, exactly. So Wheeler himself said, Jackson came to me when I read the script for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. When I played it to Jerry Lieber, he said, your first verse is suck. Throw them away and start the song with your last verse. I mean, that's constructive criticism, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everything you've written so far is basically dog shite. Start again. Wheeler goes on to say, when I protested to Joey that I couldn't start the song with the climax, he said, oh, yes, you can. So I rewrote the song. Thanks to Jerry's editing and help, it worked. And it absolutely does. So it's the story. It's a married couple who got, well, as they say, we got married in a fever hotter than a pepper sprout. They realise a spark's gone out of their marriage, but each one thinks the other one is to blame and they're more lively. And so they're going to go to Jackson and they'll be welcomed by the vibrant nightlife of the city. It, it puts me in a good mood, this. Makes me tap my feet. It's just, it's so well done. It it's, is. Um, yeah. They, they sound really good together. They're, they sound like a couple in love. And they, they were by this point, but... Like it, it, it didn't shock me when you said that they got married shortly after this because just the uh, the repartee between the two of them yep. at the start, yep. like that, that's clearly a, a couple who are known to each other. We'll put it that way. So there's a there's a bit of up and down to come. So the next track, uh, so this is the, the first one on the album that came from the second performance. It's "Give My Love to Rose." So it's written about a a dying convict who's released after 10 years of prison on his way home to Louisiana from San Francisco to see his wife and child one last time before he dies. Unfortunately, he collapses on the rails. He's 
picked up by a stranger and the convict asked the stranger to take some money to his wife and to give my love to Rose. And after Jackson, as I say, it's, it's a hell of a come down. Yeah. It, it doesn't, it doesn't fit with that sort of the, the previous structure of the album, which is, which is clear that it's, it's coming from the other performance. Um, and what I'm, what I'm led to believe Cash said, this was inspired by a conversation that he had with a prisoner at San Quentin who asked him to take a message if he passed through his hometown. Um, the other the other thing that I also found out when looking back into, into this, apparently it's Bruce Springsteen's favourite Cash song. Right, okay. And it's, whilst I don't think it fits where it sits in the album, it's a really, it's a lovely performance. Um, this is one of my favourite songs on the album. Yeah, it's 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 beautiful. Um, it is. It's really moving. It's as you say, it's a bit weird where it is. Uh, his voice sounds really soulful on this. Um, yeah, as you say, it's a bit weird where it is, but that doesn't take away from from the power of the performance. And you got to say, the crowd's really into it too. Yeah, exactly. Um, and because it, it, again, it's another prison-related song that the the. The people there will will understand that the sentiments of that exactly, as they will the next song, which is <laughs> which is the the only other song on the album, which comes from the second performance later in the day. I got stripes, so we're back up again now. Uh, a sort of a bit of more up tempo, bit bit more gallows humor. Look at me. With the, the the position of these two songs seems to be the wrong way round. If you if you did Jackson then stripes, then that would make sense. The thing that the thing that I find really surprising, certainly in the the version I was I was listening to on Jackson, obviously, and give my love to Rose. June Carter's credited, like so it says with June Carter, like the the version I listened to on Stripes. Even though her voice is really quite prominent in it, she's not credited, which which seems a bit weird. Like not directly credited, saying with June Carter. Yeah, that is weird because because she is she's quite clearly there, and she definitely is. So uh, this borrows, in inverted commas, from a Lead Belly song on a Monday. Not, not a bad uh, fella to be nicking uh, your tunes from, really. No. So have you have you heard on a Monday? I have indeed, and yes, yes, it 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 has the Noel Gallagher borrowing. I mean, this whole lyrics lifted, <laughs> Lead Belly. So anyone that doesn't know, iconic. Thirties uh, bluesman Lead Belly. If you've ever listened to the Nirvana MTV Unplugged album, the last song "Where Did You Sleep Last Night" is probably the most famous Lead Belly song. In fact, he's talking about Lead Belly just before before that performance. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks. But it's another really nice gallows humor song, as I said. And again, the band just driving the song forward in behind is so tight. I, I love it. I love Stripes. Yeah, it's it, it's brilliantly done. So well performed. It it's just enjoyable. It's a banger. It, yeah, a banger is right. And then we're on to the green green grass of home. So this was written by Claude Curly Putman Jr. Uh, in first recorded in 1965 by Johnny Darrell. I, I think the most famous version, certainly to people in the UK, is the Tom Jones version, uh, which was a worldwide number one smash hit in 1966. And in the UK, it sold one and a quarter million copies. So yes, it's, it, it's that song. And it's another, it's another come down. Uh, so you were down for Give My Love to Rose, you've come back up for I Got Stripes, and then you're back down with the green, green grass at home. I've got to say, 
I love this performance. It captures the lament and the desperation within the song. Yeah, we, we, without question, I think you've I think you've perfectly encapsulated it there. It's a really pretty version of the song. The backing vocals are lovely. It's very country. The the, yes, the performance is. of it, but I think that doesn't take away from, as you say, the lament of it. I think the the country style lends itself to that kind of forlorn lament, which which is within the song. But you don't. I never really got that from the Tom Jones version. No, but I certainly certainly get it get it from here. Exactly. So so it's another one where there's a great story. So there's a, a man seemingly returning home after a long time away and he steps off the train and his family's there to meet him and his, his, his old sweetheart. He sees the oak tree that he used to play around when he was a kid. He goes back to his old family home and it hasn't changed, but it transpires. He awakens in prison. It was all a dream and he's about to walk to his, he's on death row. He's about to walk to his execution. And as you said, you don't you don't get that that melancholy from the Tom Jones version. Whereas the way the way Johnny Cash sings it, what I've written here is that his voice it's full of mournful foreshadowing. Oh, that's a that's a lovely way of describing it. You've encapsulated it perfectly. I don't think I don't think I really need to add anything more to that. And then, like a shot, we are on to the last song on the album, Greystone Chapel. So this as Johnny Cash says before he performs the song was written by an inmate at Folsom prison who they put in the front row, Glenn Shirley. He didn't know that they were going to sing the song. They were going to perform the song, but he'd been put in the, in the front row. So he must've had some suspicion. I don't know. There's a lot to be said about Glenn Shirley before we go into the song itself. The first thing I want to say is a quote from Johnny Cash in an interview with life magazine in 1994. The night before I was going to record at Folsom Prison, I got to the motel and a preacher friend of mine brought me a tape of a song called Greystone Chapel. He said a convict had written it about the chapel at Folsom. I listened to it one time and said, I've got to do this in the show tomorrow. So I stayed up and learnt it. And the next day, the preacher had him in the front row. I announced this song was written by Glenn Shirley. It was a terrible, terrible thing to point him out among all those cons. But I didn't think about that then. Everybody's just had a fit, screaming and carrying on. Glenn Shirley, after his release from prison, he wrote other songs, he performed them. He went on tour with Johnny Cash. But there's a really tragic end to his story. So he very much struggled to uh, adapt to life on the outside. Yeah, I, I can't remember which member of, of the band that I, I read speaking about Glenn Shirley, and they, they were they were saying essentially that in Folsom he'd been the big man, the big fish in the in the little pond. And when when he came outside, like he had all this attention on him because obviously Johnny wanted to help him and everything, but he just couldn't cope. He he was institutionalized to to some extent, and being outside, he just couldn't fit with the mores of society and and everything like that. And he just he, he just couldn't handle. Yeah, and it's it's such a tragic story. It is. There's there's more which I which I won't go into. But Shirley's behaviour when on tour with Cash was was com- increasingly erratic. He threatened more than one member of the band, and ultimately he had to be removed from the tour. And very tragically, he took his own life when working on on, on a farm. So, Greystone Chapel, 
the song itself is really gospel sounding. The backing vocals give it a, a, a very gospel sensibility. I think it's a beautiful end to the performance. Without without question, you know, the, the June June's voice gives it that 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 classic sort of gospel sound, and it it is it is a beautiful way to to end the album. And again, the performances are are, are phenomenal. It's a it's a fantastic collection, really. So. That's at Folsom Prison. As usual, I'll just talk a little bit about the album's legacy, how it performed, how it was received, etc. The first thing to say is, is at the time of the release, Columbia didn't actually invest very much. They didn't think it was going to be a great success. But spurred on by the success of Folsom Prison Blues as the, as the single to promote the album, which reached number 13 on the Billboard pop charts, that propelled the album itself to, to, to some fairly significant commercial success. By August 1968, the album had sold 300,000 copies. Eventually, it was certified gold for, uh, in the US for selling over half a million. It has since been certified three times platinum in the US and has sold over three and a half million copies worldwide. Uh, in the US, it charted at number one in the country charts, number 13 overall. In the UK, it charted at number seven in the album charts. Uh, in terms of some of the uh, reviews of the album, so Al Aronovitz in Life magazine said, Cash sings like someone who's grown up believing that he is one of the people that these songs are about. And that speaks to what you said earlier about whether or not he spent significant time in prison. He could certainly relate to those people. Yeah, and Al Aronovitz, is, he's an interesting character in himself. Um, so I had, the, I had noted down the same, same comment um, Al Aronovitz was the journalist who introduced Dylan to the Beatles, and it was allegedly his joint that they first smoked. Wow, there you go. That's there you go, a little a little factoid for people there, including me. I hadn't heard that before. <laughs> that's that's interesting. So, uh, just a few more comments from reviews. Anne Fisher from the gloriously named Village Voice said every cut is special in its own way. Richard Goldstein from the same publication said that it is filled with the kind of emotionalism you seldom find in rock, which I think we've said quite a few times. Uh, and I think that's a really, really good way of putting it. it yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic way of describing it. And I said earlier that this rejuvenated Cash's career, really. He, he said it himself. That's when things really got started for me again. Something I just wanted to, to read from, from the band as well. So Marshall Grant, in, in terms of how Cash was feeling in, before they decided to do the gig, uh, Marshall Grant said, this was a way to get something out of him to release because we couldn't get him in the studio. And when we did get him in the studio, he'd come completely unprepared. He came in and would start writing songs. You can't do that because every part of our career proves, especially with others and him, you have to get the songs, work it up, have it ready to go. Well, we couldn't get him to do that. So it came up through conversation. Let's do an album at Folsom Prison. So I think that speaks to what we were saying, that it revitalized his career at a time where personally and professionally he was in the doldrums it obviously yeah it revives revived cash's career and obviously the next prison performance was filmed like there was another live album it, this this set set johnny going for for a good a good 10 years before before he reached um, the 80s and things started to go to go a little wrong for him musically so uh just to bring things to a close it was listed at number 88 on rolling stones 2003 list of the 500 
greatest albums. And in 2003, the US Library of Congress chose the album to be added to the National Recording Registry uh, as a recording wow. of significance. Well, exactly. And as I said, this was the first Johnny Cash album I heard in full, and I love it. As, as I um, said repeatedly in our first record, it's a lovely piece of work. Okay. okay. So let's do best song, worst song. So, uh, yeah, what's your favourite? What's your least favourite? So I think my favourite song, the it's it's a tough choice because there are so many good ones on there. I'd probably go with 25 Minutes to Go. I think it's the gallows humour of it and the performance is, is brilliant, even though he loses count. Okay, what's your least favourite? I think it's probably Dirty Old Egg Sucking Dog. Whilst I don't particularly dislike it, it's it's the flimsiest song on the album. Okay. So for me, best song was really tough, actually. And there's, I've not actually been able to settle on one. I've, I've, I've been a bit of a shithouse and chosen two. Absolutely shithouse. Yeah, I know. So um, Cocaine Blues is, I love it. It's, well, as we said, it's a really, it's a really great up-tempo murder ballad. And I, I love the way the crowd is absolutely going wild throughout that track. It's great. And for a completely different reason, I love Send a Picture of Mother. It's beautiful. It's really moving. And your least favourite? Uh, I, I think I was pretty clear about this as we went through it. It's for, for very much the same reasons as you said, although I think I was a bit more irritated by it than you. Flushed in the bathroom of your heart. I don't think there's any point in it, to be honest with you. Fair enough. I, th- I think both of those songs we've we found to be the weakest, really, on, on, on the album. So that brings us to the end of At Folsom Prison. I really enjoyed going through that album. Yes, and unlike some of the previous albums we've we've reviewed as part of as part of Album Clash, a relatively short album, quick and punchy. Big fan of that. Definitely, definitely. More of this, please. <laughs> okay, so um, once again, thanks very much for listening. And uh, Kev, it's your favourite bit of the show. Just tell people how they can keep in touch with us, please. So if um, if you aren't. Uh, the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, you can uh, get us on Twitter at Clash Album. You may you may be into photographs, so you can you can find us on Instagram at Clash Album, or if you're an old git like we are, you can contact us via email at albumclash at gmail.com. So yeah, please uh, get in touch with us if you want to. Uh, if you would like to leave a review for us on whichever platform it is you use to listen to podcasts. Please do means a great deal to us. Subscribe to us, obviously. Um, keep listening to the show. Tell people about it. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for listening. And we shall see you next time. I've been Tim. I've been Kev. And uh, yeah, thanks very much. Bye now. Cheers. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>